Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Happy Thanksgiving! This week's episode features Laura Clark, who spent two years in Italy. While there for the holidays, Laura made yeasted potato rolls from an old family recipe she enjoyed with her cousins at childhood Thanksgivings. Laura felt pressure preparing these for an Italian from Naples, known to be home to the best bread in the world, but Laura's rolls received rave reviews. Today, as Laura shares with us about her time in Italy, I am especially appreciative that she was willing to be vulnerable about the best and the most difficult two years in her life and about the creative awakening she experienced in Bologna. Good afternoon, Laura. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with me. Of course. My pleasure. My honor. So I have to tell you, the rolls just Mm -hmm. came out of the oven about 10 minutes ago. How do they look? (laughs) They looked okay. They tasted amazing. Oh, yes. So what would you say makes your rolls, the Clark family rolls, especially amazing? I think the two biggest things are the texture and Mm -hmm. the flavor. Um, What else is there? (laughs) Right. The texture, they can get like a little crust on the outside. So you get kind of this, a little bit of a crispness. And Mm -hmm. I always hated crust on bread because to me it was just really dry. And But these, you just get this nice crispiness to it. Um, it's almost like opening a present, right? Because yeah. you kind of have to break through it. It's like a Cadbury <laughs> egg. You got to break through the chocolate to get to yeah. that creaminess inside. Right. Yeah, it's almost more like a shell. Yes. Maybe a better way to describe it rather than a crust. It's more like a thin shell. Yeah. And then you break through that and then you get to this kind of, there's still like a lightness to it and sort of almost a creaminess in yes. a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if you do them when they're straight. I don't know if you did this when you made them, but if you cut into one or tore one open straight out of the oven when they're still hot mm-hmm. and it just like the steam comes out and mm-hmm. they're just kind of pillowy and then you put butter on them and do real butter don't do margarine do real always. butter and it's, always yes <laughs> and and I think the other thing is the flavor they're not overly sweet Mm-mm. there's a savoriness to them and I think the potato enriches the dough so it gives it a more complex flavor there's a a richness to it. And Mm -hmm. I think they hold up really well to all these, because when you think about a classic traditional American Thanksgiving table, you have foods that are very rich, very heavy, very, we use a lot of herbs and a lot of spices and seasonings. So they're very heavily seasoned and it's easy for a roll to just kind of be in the background, but these really flavor wise really stand up to these other foods. And then they're really great the next day mm. or sliders. Um, oh. They're amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, cut them like a slider, cut them in half. And then, you know, like I'll do gravy on one side and cranberry sauce on the other and a little bit of turkey in the middle, maybe some stuffing and whatever mm. else you have on hand and maybe some sweet potato. You know, I just kind of play around mm. with different combinations and they're really good. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My, oh, I haven't wanted to interrupt you, but I've been like nodding my head vigorously. <laughs> Right. at the description. And then you started to say what you do with them the next day. And like my eyes rolled back. <laughs> like, oh. So you shared that recipe with me and you shared a cranberry tea recipe. Uh-huh. I did. 
just to be just to be sure, I didn't miss anything. The cranberry tea actually does not have tea in it. It does not. No, um, there are no tea leaves in it. I don't know why it's called cranberry tea. That's just how we <laughs> what we always called it. My assumption is that I I think the recipe basically says boil the cranberries with sugar and spices and whatnot, and then essentially serve it hot. And so yes. I think maybe that's kind of the idea. Whereas most punches, you don't really serve hot. Mm. Um, you can serve it hot. It's great that way. A lot of times we serve it cold mm-hmm. and it's really great that way as well. And it's also nice because then you can make it ahead of time. And yeah. And that's the key to any party food make right. ahead of time. Uh-huh. You know, tea kind of has a slightly bitter flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that this has a bitter flavor, but it definitely has those sour notes because it has the cranberry, of course, and then also the lemon juice. Right. Yeah. And it's, I, and I think that's what distinguishes it from a punch is it's not overly sweet and sugary yeah. like a punch is. You definitely, mm-hmm. and you definitely need sugar in it to cut that natural tartness and sourness from the cranberries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the spices in there. So you get that nice complexity of flavor. But what's great is, especially it pairs really well with a holiday meal because you have all the starches and the fats and, you know, all these heavy foods. And so that, acidity in the cranberry tea really cuts through all of that. And then you have that brightness Hmm. that's just inherent in the cranberries that just kind of brightens everything up. So it kind of cleanses your palate Mm -hmm. and gets you ready for the next bite, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. a really, it's a really great pairing. (laughs) That's an amazing description. I feel like you could get a job on the food network. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you sold it to people because it really is all of those things. I think it's the most photogenic thing I've ever made. Mm. That steam just coming off that deep Mm. cranberry color. I'm going to reheat it both to photograph it, but also because it, I I don't drink tea and I also, I don't drink, uh, I don't drink any caffeine past noon. Mm -hmm. It felt natural and nourishing and healing. It made me Mm -hmm. think of how you drink, you know, hot lemon water. Right. Yeah. I will say I tried to do like a healthy version one year and no with sugar. Coconut sugar. No, I did coconut sugar. It was terrible. It was so bad. <laughs> I think because coconut sugar is almost more like brown sugar and it has more of those like kind of molasses color and flavor to it. And so the, the color is just like was really muddy. And then the flavor was just, it was so bad. <laughs> Stick to the regular sugar. <laughs> stick to the regular sugar. Okay, yeah. And I guess I'll stick with the phrase, it feels healthy, rather than <laughs> rather than making the claim that it is healthy. It is healthy. <laughs> so I would love to hear about your childhood Thanksgivings. So we always celebrated Thanksgiving with my dad's side of the family. Up until I was about 10, we would do Thanksgiving in either my aunt's house or my grandmother's house. And then my parents bought a house when I was about 10. And so then they started, they had space to host everybody. So then Mm -hmm. that kind of got added into the rotation. My grandfather had been a research professor at Texas A&M University. So it's very much a college town. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of international students that would come and study there. And his father had lived in Turkey for about 10 years doing research there. And he had done a little, my grandfather had done a little travel with his work and they really had a heart for international students. And mm. so it was not uncommon for a few international students to be there as well, especially when I was younger. So that was always fun because it just normalized that for me. Mm-hmm. But I think the adults would usually talk to them. 
I was usually really excited to see my cousins mm-hmm. <laughs> and get to play with them. You know how kids are. So we would usually go play in the creek because they lived out in the country. So we would just kind of <laughs> crawl around up on the creek banks and swing from branches and things like that. And it was really fun. They were out in the country on 100 acres. So we had woods and there was a fire in the fireplace. So the best part about Thanksgiving to you was your cousins. Yeah, I think so. You can have a great meal mm-hmm. by yourself and enjoy it. But there's mm-hmm. something about sharing it with somebody else. I think it's about coming together, how food brings people together. Now, so, would you guys do the cooking together? So usually whoever was hosting would do the turkey because that's the hardest thing to transport. Right. And then kind of the bulk of the rest of the sides would get divided up. You know, back in the day, I think my grandmother and my aunt, my mom would either get on the phone or write each other letters because I found old letters recently at my parents' house. And I was kind of going through a box and I found these letters and it's like, okay, you know, we're having Thanksgiving at your house. And I just thought, man, that took so much work to sit down and write a letter and send it in the mail. And I guess I'm just surprised this is well within the era of the telephone. Yeah. And I think maybe they would probably call each other as well, but I found a letter where they had written the Thanksgiving plans. You found it at your grandmother's house? No, at my parents' house. At your parents' house, and it was from? I think it was from my aunt. It was probably when I was like in the 80s. That's amazing. You know, we had phones. Yeah. Yeah, they had been around for like uh, 80 years about. (laughs) But, you know, and it was long distance for them because they were so far away. So it was probably more cost-effective to write a letter. Yeah. And then I'm sure at some point they finalized details over the phone, but it's really interesting. It is interesting. My son was just asking me about that the other day, something about why area codes even matter. I mean, from a mathematical standpoint, you need that many numbers, but I was explaining to him about the concept of long distance and. Didn't you have to dial one? You did. You had to dial one. And then, yeah, I think it was, I don't know how much it was, but it added up very quickly. Yeah. And wow. depend, and then sometimes they would have like, well, if you call during these hours, you oh, know, right. like you could get the discounted rate and, and it was like the first five minutes or this much. And then every minute after that, they had all those different plans, you know? Yeah. And the long, you, like you could get your long distance plan. Wow. And you, is... it was like, well, how much do I call long distance? Like, you know, cause you kind of figure out like, is it worth it? Well, exactly. And if they were going to talk over the phone, they maybe wanted to talk about the new baby or, you know, switching jobs and they didn't want to spend time, spend money talking about a Thanksgiving menu. Yeah. Wow. I I guess. And then also you had to call when the other person was home because we didn't really have any, like my parents didn't have an answering machine for years, even though they were around. And I don't know when my aunt an uncle got one. So it was also, so you had to call them when they were home and available to talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do not think about communication changing that much since the eighties. Right. But it's changed a lot. And you said, you know, quote, they were so far away, but we're talking an hour and 15 minutes, right? But you know, you're right because now that I'm thinking about it, I grew up in a Maryland suburb mm-hmm. and my aunt and uncle were in a Virginia suburb. I mean, you just zip around the beltway. Right. Well, you don't zip anywhere on the beltway because right. DC traffic is so <laughs> horrific. But And I think it was long distance to call my aunt and uncle right over there in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. My aunt and uncle were considered long distance because they were a different area code. 
Yes, exactly. It came down to the area code. Yeah. So, then let's transition to Italy. How long did you live in Italy? So I lived in Italy for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working with a Christian organization. I was working with university students in Bologna, Italy, and helping them explore their faith, studying the Bible. What does the Bible have to say? Who is God? Getting to know God. So that's what I did there. It was a big departure from working as a nurse for 11 years because mm. I didn't do any nursing while I was there. Um, I actually, my plan was to go to Australia because my best friends were living there and I had visited and they said, apparently they treat their nurses really well. <laughs> um, mm. And in the meantime, I went on a mission trip to Italy working with university students and every year they would rent out a big banquet hall and put on a Thanksgiving dinner and invite students. And it was a great way, again, food brings people together. It's a great way to get to know people and build relationships, but they needed people to come and help with the cooking and the cleaning so that they could be freed up to spend time with their guests. Mm -hmm. And so my church came over with a group to do the behind the scenes. I really thought, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go home. And in a few months, I'm going to hopefully be on my way to Australia. And it was during that, that week there that I thought, you know what, maybe I should consider working with this organization. And so I applied and was accepted and quit my job as a nurse. And next thing I knew, I was on an airplane to Italy and I lived there for two years. And it was two of the best and two of the hardest years of my life through just cross-cultural transition is just, it's challenging. I think God really just used all of that to make me depend on him. And really showed me like all I really need is him. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know Italian before you went? I did not. I did some kind of, there's an, a language learning app that I downloaded. So I did a little bit of that before I moved over there. But essentially I moved over there not really knowing any Italian. So I did a two-week intensive language course, which helped. And then we would do tutoring every week for about an hour. And if you were going to help students explore issues of faith, Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something you need. Yeah. Very, a very deep understanding of or command of a language, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was frustrating. Thankfully, most of the students I worked with, um, their English was very good and they generally wanted to improve their English. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times I got pretty good with my vocabulary in, in that, you know, you, you learn vocabulary in certain areas, like I had a pretty strong food vocabulary because I had to shop for food and order food at restaurants, you know, (laughs) you work that muscle, you know, in those areas. Um, and so when you're using certain things over and over, you kind of develop that vocabulary, Mm -hmm. um, and you figure out ways to say things, um, and communicate. But in terms of like, just being able to discuss every topic under the sun freely and that I never got to. So, Mm -hmm. so did you find you know, you had to, it's like when you don't have one sense, you know, you, your others become more heightened. Mm. So with the language kind of dulled that ability to communicate, did you find that food was some kind of bridge to getting to know people, to sharing in their culture or in conversations? Yeah, I think so. I never thought about it that way of like a sense being dulled, but I think that's a really 
great way to put it. Yes, despite the fact that I was a nurse and studied mm-hmm. science, I do have an artistic, creative side to me. Mm-hmm. And especially baking, I remember probably being nine or 10 and wanting to get into the kitchen on my own and tinker around and calling out her Betty Crocker cookbook and <laughs> um, flipping through that. And I even, when I was in college, I even considered going, should I go to pastry school and become a chef? Back then, it was pretty much you go and you become a line cook and maybe you work your way up to becoming a chef. And that was kind of it. I mean, again, I'm sure there were other little things that you could do, but not like there is today. No, it's become very democratized. Ah, You know, what if the economy goes bad and I can't find a job? And, And so nursing seemed like a safer bet. So Italy really woke up my creative side, I think, mm. because you're just around. It's like it's like a museum. You live in a yeah. museum. Some nights we just walk around town and look up in the windows that were open on like the second floor. And we'd try and like look in the windows because you could see the ceiling mm. through these windows. And some of them were beautifully painted ceilings. So we just, you just wander around and try and find these little like hidden treasures just Mm. tucked away and they were everywhere they were were on every corner oh Mm. yeah they were everywhere and there's always something to discover um Mm. and it was just like a little treasure hunt now Um, where is bologna so it's up in the north about i think it's around 70 miles north of florence in terms of like east west it's situated pretty much centrally between the east and west coast. And it's not really in the mountains per se, but it starts getting a little bit hilly and mountainous in there. It's down in the valley in winter. It's brutal in the sense that temperature-wise, it's pretty moderate. You don't necessarily get a lot of snow. It maybe snows once or twice for the season, mm-hmm. but it gets really foggy. Oh. And you will not see the sun for like a month. Oh. Rough. <laughs> wow. So, because the sun is kind of diffused because mm-hmm. of all the cloud cover, the light kind of does weird stuff. And it, I really think it, you know, I'm from, I'm from Houston, so I'm used to <laughs> sunshine all year round. <laughs> I really think it kind of does something to your brain. Did the art help you get through that? Was that, those were yeah. some of the bright spots. Those are some of the bright spots. So good old Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. That's like, I really started getting into that. And that was a creative outlet, but baking, I think that was something because there's a lot you can't control. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, As an American in a foreign culture, there's a lot you can't control. Right. But you can control everything when you're baking. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm. theoretically. (laughs) Yeah. You know, again, going back to the census thing, like I, I didn't have a voice. Mm. And I didn't have a way of expressing myself the way I wanted to. So I think I expressed myself through my creativity and through food. Mm. And that was something tangible. I think also with doing ministry, it's an intangible thing. I came from a nursing job where you could measure results, you know, and you do this and this and get an outcome. Mm-hmm. In ministry, you you don't get that. And that was really hard. And mm-hmm. so I think baking was also an outlet in that I could mix flour and water and, and pour it into whatever or mold it into whatever and stick it in the oven and out comes a result. Hmm. And I love sharing food with people. And so that was a great way to, to get to know people. Did you particularly pursue Italian baking and cooking while you were there? I would say I did mostly American. I did a lot of cakes. I really got into cakes and I was watching Great British Bake Off at the time. So that (laughs) my interest and 
And Italian ingredients are very different from American ingredients. Italy was really kind of a training ground for me because I went from just pull a recipe book off a shelf and mix it together and stick it in the oven and then it comes out. Whereas in Italy, the ingredients don't always cooperate. (laughs) And Mm. so it really drove me to have to understand the science behind recipes and what is each ingredient supposed to do and can you do a substitute and what will happen and how do you do that? And, Mm. and it really just woke up my, my interest in food and just really opened my eyes to like, there's a whole world of information out there in food that I never knew was there. Mm. Now you said it didn't cooperate the way it would here. Is that because the environmental, you know, like you talked about the fog, so it's very humid there, Mm. obviously, or is it because the ingredients are actually different? I think a lot of it, is that the ingredients are different. The big thing is flour, trying to decipher the different types of flour. Um, they have a much wider array of flours. Yeah, because you would have like your pasta flour and you have your bread flour and you have, and they do more pasta and bread, which need to have more protein and more gluten in it because you need that structure. But okay. when you're doing like cakes and pastries, you need something more delicate with a lower gluten and protein content. I've been doing reading recently. I think even the varieties of wheat that they use are different than American varieties because I have friends who can eat, who are like sensitive to gluten, but they can eat like pasta when they go to Italy and not have a problem. This is exactly what my guest Daniela was saying. Um, I remember that. Yep. She's Czechoslovakian. And she has an autoimmune disease. I mean, she's very strictly gluten-free here. She can go to the Czech Republic and eat whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Now, you mentioned in one of the things that you sent me that food was the starting point for conversation. Yeah. Italians love food and they are passionate about food, which (laughs) was great for me because I feel the same way. For example, we went to a restaurant and one of my American friends who spoke fluent Italian asked the waiter, I want this pasta, but I want this sauce. Is that possible? Like, can I get this pasta shape with this sauce? And the waiter said, oh, the waiter went to the kitchen, came back, and he told my friend, no, it is not possible. Because you have certain sauces go with certain pasta shapes. And it's really kind of true. And he was very frustrated by that. He's like, what does that matter? You know, Mm -hmm. very American, like the customer's always right mentality. But to me, it was a little refreshing that there was like a tradition. The other thing is you don't (laughs) drink cappuccino after like 1030 or 11 in the morning. Mm -hmm. There's too much milk in it and it upsets your stomach. So what is Bologna known for in terms of flavors? Oh, yes. And techniques. Uh, So they're not really known for bread baking. Bread is known like Naples is famous for bread especially the pizza doughs. Tuscany does bread as well. They do unsalted bread. Yeah. And I think it's for all the sauces and everything. Mm-hmm. But And you know, their cured meats aren't very salty either. Mm-hmm. But Bologna is known for um, Bolognese ragu. So mm-hmm. either with tagliatelle or pappardelle noodles. So very flat, sort of wide noodles. Um, okay. And then you can also Handmade? Handmade? Um, always- um... Traditionally, yes. Um, and I think they're usually egg noodles. 
um, because you need something really hearty and some good structure to hold up to that heavy ragu. They're known for lasagna. And then outside of Bologna is Modena, which is known for balsamic vinegar. And really, Bologna is in the Emilia-Romagna region, which is kind of known to be like the breadbasket of Italy. There's almost more of a farm-to-table aspect in that the food Mm -hmm. is just so fresh and so flavorful. I really got spoiled. I mean, I would come home and the tomatoes just, I was like, American tomatoes are worthless. The flavors, (laughs) this concentration of flavors in the tomatoes in Italy is just phenomenal. Parma is, I think it's Modena's the closest, and then Parma is a little further away, if I remember correctly. Parma as in Parmesan cheese? Mm Mm-hmm. So technically, true Parmesan cheese is going to be called Parmigiano Reggiano, Parma ham, prosciutto, all those delightful things. And then Ferrara is a little town nearby, and they are known for this filled pasta called Capalacci di Zucca, filled with basically pumpkin puree. And you serve it with a brown butter sauce and oh. when you brown your butter you fry bits of you fry sage leaves in there oh wow and then you toss the cooked pasta with the brown butter and the sage and it's and maybe a little bit of nutmeg on top like just the slightest bit of nutmeg on top and it's maybe some parmesan and it's amazing it's really wow. good yeah oh, wow bologna is called the learned the red and the fat <laughs> because they i think when i was there some pretty big food publication listed as like the number two city in the world for like eating out in restaurants and and all that. And Italian food is really to a certain degree, very simple food Mm. in that they kind of take these core ingredients of they manage to make these amazing combinations. It's, and it's very regional. Um, Yes. Like I could not find pesto to save my life until I went up. My friend and I, she came to visit, we went to Lake Como and I finally found pesto on the menu. Interesting. Um, and then what is an authentic ragu or Bolognese sauce versus what we think of? Right. Usually has a mirepoix, which is going to be carrots, celery, and onion. Oh, um, yeah. I've never mm-hmm. put carrots in my... <laughs> mm-hmm. In your sauces. In my yeah, spaghetti sauces. sauces. Yeah. Uh-uh. Okay. So for a Bolognese, that's the very traditional way is you, you start out with that. The one I, the recipe I got for my tutor, I think... And you can do it, you can do kind of all beef, you can do all pork, you can do all veal. I do a combination of all three. Mm. Um, tomato sauce, usually it's called passata, so it's like a puree. And then some wine. Mm. At the end, I think toward the end, you add milk and Really? Mm-hmm. And butter? Mm-hmm. And it makes it real rich and velvety. And wow. Velvety. Oh, Yeah. This is for both a bolognese and a ragu? Um, So ragu is really just the general term for sauce. Okay. So it's just kind of a standard catch-all word. And then you would specify bolognese ragu, like a ragu in the bolognese style. Speaking of this um, pumpkin-filled ravioli with the browned butter sauce and the sage, that sounds very Thanksgiving-y. It does. (laughs) Do Italians celebrate Thanksgiving? No, they celebrate a ton of other <laughs> holidays yeah. and festivals. Yeah. Um, Did you have a favorite Italian holiday that you um, experienced? I think really Christmas. Yeah, they put up lights and they do a big tree in the middle of the piazza. And um, oh, and then they have they have Christmas markets. 
Mm. Especially the further north you go, went into like Germany and Switzerland. They set up stalls and they have outdoor Christmas markets. And those are so much fun. Mm. And there was a French Christmas market in the piazza around the corner from where I lived for like three weeks. And it was great because mm. in the middle they would have this one stall that was doing food. And so they'd have all these French foods. Mm. So my friends and I would like go there and we'd pick up dinner and we'd sit there and like eat. And then we'd mm. go to all the other little stalls, kind of window shop. Wow. So what so kind like, of things would they have in the stalls? Just little trinkets or jewelry? Scarves. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have Christmas ornaments, different types of like cookies, confections, sometimes chocolates. They had one at the French market that had spices, just spices and spices, like oh. spices and herbs. Mm. And then there was always like the cheese stalls, oh. and all <laughs> these different cheeses. And then you'd have right. like the charcuterie. Mm. So all the meats, mm-hmm. bread, you could go and get a crepe, you know, hot cider, the whole bit. I think it was just kind of a way to like get your Christmas shopping done. In November, I think a week or two before Thanksgiving, you know, our Thanksgiving, to them, it was just, you know, middle of November, they would have a chocolate festival. Oh, And my. so the big piazza in town, Piazza Maggiore, they would have like tents set up that covered the entire piazza. And you would have vendors like who made chocolate from all over Italy, all over, even people from like all over Europe would mm. come to the chocolate festival. And I'm sure they had competitions. Um, and so we would go and like the whole piazza would smell like chocolate. <laughs> and I called it like, I called it Bologna's annual apology to me for all those like <laughs> rough things that had happened the year before. I'd be like, okay, I forgive you for like, you know, stepping that time I stuck, stepped in the dog poo and when the bus didn't show up and I almost missed oh, my appointment God. to the immigration office and, mm. um, and you get the hot chocolate, which is really basically just pudding. Oh, um, but they don't really celebrate Thanksgiving. Right. Um, so yes, back to Thanksgiving. So then yeah. you put Thanksgiving on for mm-hmm. Italians, kind mm-hmm. of like they, you know, they were sharing their culture and now you were going to share yours for exactly. a moment. If they've seen American movies or TV shows, they've, they've kind of mm-hmm. seen it, you know, here comes the big turkey out of the oven, that kind of thing. So what were the barriers to making a Thanksgiving mm-hmm. dinner in Italy? Easy to get turkeys in in Bologna. Yeah. So turkeys is a big one. You can't just go to the grocery store and get a turkey. So what did you do? So the organization I was with, we would do these Thanksgiving dinners as a way to get to know students and and just, you know, and share part of of our culture with them. And um, and it was just fun. And Mm -hmm. my team leader knew... He knew a guy, as you say in Italy, like, I know a guy. Um, So he had this connection. He said, now you can either do a raw turkey and cook it yourself, or you can order it already cooked. And so we ordered ours already cooked. Was it good? I think I remember it was pretty good. I think one of the biggest challenges is European kitchens are very small. European ovens and refrigerators are very small like our fridge was pretty large for a european fridge and my roommate was very petite she was probably around five feet tall but i think she was still taller than the fridge doesn't it just make you think though of the generations that have produced feasts (laughs) in those kitchens yeah but our oven we jokingly called it the easy bake oven um, (laughs) because it was so small so that was part of the thinking behind let's not do the turkey because we don't even know if it'll fit in the oven. Mm. 
So that was another challenge. A lot of the ingredients are hard to come by. Like you can get cans of pumpkin over there, but you're going to be spending like eight euros a can. Mm -hmm. It's really expensive because it's imported. But clearly there's pumpkins there if that pumpkin dish was. uh, Yeah. So they have pumpkins, but they don't, they don't do pumpkin pie. And so they don't puree it and can it and like we do. Yeah, they don't process it. Yeah, they don't process it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and our classic American recipes are based on processed food. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. So my friend Heather actually came over and helped my first year helped with Thanksgiving. So she brought, I think, an entire suitcase full. It was like 30 cans of pumpkin and evaporated milk and cranberry sauce and cream and mushroom soup and, you know, wow. all sorts of stuff. The cream and um, mushroom soup was for a green bean casserole. Yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> one of my friends took a picture of me at the grocery store. I'm like squatting. I don't know if you saw. That. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I'm squatting. I'm squatting in the grocery store aisle, and I have like I'm on my phone and I'm going back and forth <laughs> between Google Translate because I'm trying to figure out. I think I was trying to figure out the flour and the yeast. Oh. The yeast is very different from ours and Mm -hmm. so I had an American friend who had lived in Italy a little bit longer than I had and he loved to bake Mm -hmm. so I was going back and forth between Google Translate and texting him and is this to make the rolls the recipe that you shared yeah it was to make the rolls it does kind of make you feel like we can't be doing our best here right (laughs) we just throw all purpose at everything everybody else like has special stuff and we're like eh, that'll do (laughs) so how did they turn out in Italy so we have this Thanksgiving dinner and it's, and it wasn't just Italians, but there was a guy from Iran. So, you know, we're all sitting around the table eating and someone asked him, you know, what do you think about life here in Italy and what are you enjoying? And, and he said, oh, I love it here. I've really enjoyed my time. And he said, the food is amazing. I think that's one of my favorite things. And he said, the, the bread is, it's just incredible. And the pizza is amazing. Well, there's this guy from Naples, which is known for their bread and their pizza Mm-hmm. And he just gets outraged because, mm-hmm. you know, they're very passionate about their food and they're very, and it's a very regional mindset. And so he says, so he interrupts and he says, no, the bread, the pizza here. And he inserts an expletive is sleep. <laughs> and we're all like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it. So then that's right when the rolls come out of the oven. Oh, no. The pressure. Like, yeah, no pressure. Like I just get to serve bread to the guy from the land of bread. <laughs> it's very opinionated about his bread. And so I'm passing the rolls around. And so like, you know, I, I hand him one. So I sit, you know, I just kind of slink back to my chair and sit down. And um, a few minutes later, he's like, what is this? And I was like, what do you mean? And he says, what do you call this? And I said, well, it's a roll. He's like, what is a roll? And I was like, well, it's bread, you know, like, you know, we roll the dough and we bake it and we call it a roll. And, and I was like, I don't know what this guy wants. And, um, yeah. And you're probably painfully aware of these aren't exactly the way my aunt made them. They're not right. my, yeah, my best work. Yeah. That's the thing is they didn't turn out exactly how, you know, I remembered them. And he's like, these are amazing. <laughs> oh my. And I was like, okay, good. They're so amazing. And they're just so pillowy and the flavor and he was going on and on and on and I was like wow okay I passed muster wow <laughs> so that that has like lodged in my head um that memory yeah of, 
What so that great... is like indelibly tied with that, that roll recipe now. Yes. So. What a great review to hand back to your mom and your <laughs> aunts and your grandmother. They must have been so proud. Yeah. I yeah. don't know if I actually ever told them that story. I don't know. Oh, you got I, it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners to know, these rolls are so good. That a guy from, where did you say, from Naples? Naples. That a guy from Naples thought they were amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So I have just one question about the rolls before we yes. wrap up. Yeah. Um, I did follow your advice about just a little larger than golf size. Mm-hmm. I really wanted them to be uniform. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I think that's another great British bake-off mm-hmm. um, <laughs> influence yeah. on me. I've become right. obsessed with uniformity. So I just happened to make mine 30 grams because the first one that seemed bigger than golf ball size was Mm -hmm. about that size. Um, And I didn't know if I should just cook them on a baking sheet. So they kind Mm -hmm. of went free form. I put them in a muffin container Mm -hmm. so they would be conformed to the sides a little bit. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Just on a baking sheet. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Probably a couple inches apart at least. Ungreased. Okay. Oh, ungreased. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. There's three quarters of a cup of shortening yeah. in, in the recipe. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I have another major question. How yes. did I forget this one? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it gave you the order that you add the ingredients in. Mm-hmm. And then it said the dough would be sticky. Mm-hmm. And then you knead until it's smooth on top. So do you kind of knead the stickiness out? Mine was very, very sticky and I was hesitant to add more flour because I didn't Mm -hmm. know if it was one of those things that if I just kneaded and kneaded Mm -hmm. and kneaded, eventually it would kind of come together, but it really wasn't and I Mm -hmm. had to go. So I added some more flour to the Mm -hmm. point that I was a little more workable. I probably Mm -hmm. needed it for between, really between like 10 and 15 minutes Mm -hmm. total. What would you say about that? My understanding with bread is you and kind of rolls to the same thing. I think you want to knead it for a while, but if it's just almost unworkable because it's so wet, mm-hmm. maybe add a little bit of flour. Um, and you can always flour your hands. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of helps. Yeah, I was um, kind of adding it by just, you know, scraping it up, reflouring the surface, mm-hmm. flouring my hands. So rather than adding to the dough, I was kind of trying to do it that way. So right. it would be criminal. But yeah. I probably, I wouldn't be surprised if I added up to an entire cup of flour mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll just continue to play around with that. Certainly whatever happened, I couldn't ask for a better roll. Yeah. And it's a, like I said, it's a pretty forgiving recipe. Absolutely. Um, Yep. Texture and flavor. You got that. You're good. So tell me about the publication that this recipe came from. I actually texted my aunt earlier today and I was like, when did this arrive on the, on our Thanksgiving table and where did it, it originate? And she said, my grandmother, probably in the early nineties, my grandmother got it from the church cookbook mm-hmm. that she actually helped put together the church. She went to, they were building a new building, trying to raise money for that. She thought, you know, let's do a church cookbook and sell it. Um, she loved to cook. Mm-hmm. She had a vast collection of cookbooks. One year she got another cookbook for Christmas. And my aunt said, mama, what do you need another cookbook for? You have, <laughs> dozens. And she said, well, honey, I just like to sit and read a cookbook. Mm. And I thought, who sits and reads a cookbook? Like that sounded really odd to me. And then probably five years later, I found myself just sitting and reading a cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I get it now. Um, When I was thinking about this the other day, I almost wonder if she had always wanted to write a cookbook. And this was her opportunity to kind of do that. 
Oh. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but it kind of makes sense to me. Um, and so she got this committee of women together. In the book, I think it says there were six, over 600 recipes submitted, and they went through every one. And according to the women on the committee, when she passed away, they, Dorothy, but they called her Dottie. And they said, Dottie could just sit there and read a recipe and go, oh, that's a good one. Okay, that's going to be in. This one we need to tweak. And she just knew she knew how to read a recipe, you know. So, and then, and it's not your standard, like the beginning of the bread section, the first page is about how to make a sourdough starter. Wow. Ahead of its times. Yeah. It was pretty legit recipe book. Yeah. So there's a little international section and there were really great recipes in this book. Wow. What an amazing set of legacies and experiences from your grandmother to Italy. Interesting food journey. Italy didn't turn out to be what you thought it was going to be. And it wasn't for a lifetime like you were kind of hoping it would be. But like you said, it awoke a different side of you. And you seem to get to be walking down that path and finding some enjoyment in that path. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. That's good. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time this afternoon, just sharing so much time, so many stories, this amazing, amazing roll recipe. Did you, I don't know if you heard um, an outburst when you were in the middle of that last statement, but that was a kid getting home from school and he came in yelling, can I have a roll? Can I have one of these rolls? <laughs> I did not hear that. So that's good to know. Yay. Yeah. I said I was going to I made a dozen and I was Mm going to save the rest of the dough to make and photograph Mm -hmm. next Monday. But I think that probably they'll be eaten by dinner time. So I'll probably make another dozen for dinner. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say today. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing the most photogenic recipe I've ever received, which is this cranberry tea. I cannot wait to photograph it. And I'm going to drink it hot Mm. on a nice evening where my husband's drinking coffee and I can't have caffeine that late. Mm -hmm. I'm going to heat up this tea and just feel that that wholesomeness yeah you're welcome thank you for everything you're very welcome thank you absolutely you can find the recipes for the rolls and the cranberry tea on my blog simply go to the storiedrecipe.com click the podcast episodes tab find episode seven and you'll find links there to everything you need I'll be skipping a podcast next week as I enjoy my kids' break from school, as well as preparing and sharing our Thanksgiving dinner with many friends. If you're traveling, please consider catching up on episodes while you drive. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. I'm very thankful to you, my listeners. On my website, you can also find weekly episodes released every Wednesday, or you can subscribe via your favorite player. You can join the Storied Recipe community by following me over on Instagram and tagging any of these recipes with hashtag StoriedRecipe. Finally, please know that I truly believe everyone has a story to share, and I would love to hear and photograph yours. Have a great week, my friends.